Hello and welcome. I'm Sean. And I'm Kat. And this is another episode of Been There, Seen That. Welcome back to our 21st episode. Today we're covering a sci-fi fantasy and today's film is Super 8. I'm so excited to talk about this movie with you because when I first saw Super 8, I was just blown away. It's a movie that really stuck with me and over the years I didn't watch it as much as I wish I had, but I kind of like that because revisiting it and not being as familiar with it had I rewatched it was completely like watching it again. Yeah, I... So apparently, I don't remember the first time that I saw this movie because I thought it was a shot and it clearly was not. So I haven't seen it since it came out in, I think, 2011. Um, but this is the first movie that we've covered that I had seen like a long time ago to the point where I kind of forgot it and revisited it. So that was a cool experience to kind of go through and rewatch it as if it was the first time again. And I know you mentioned there was a reason that you hadn't revisited it for a while, which was <laughs> one of the kids in it throws up and it's visible on camera, which is kind of a stupid reason, but you have like a massive fear of throw up. So it's called emetophobia. It's a real thing. <laughs> but yeah, I know I hadn't watched this movie forever because I distinctly remember that scene. And I remember that one kid, he throws up like three times and it's like, <laughs> I mean, it shows it on camera, which I've gotten better now that I've grown up, so I can move past that. <laughs> Either way, I'm so excited to talk about it with you today, and I'm so excited just because of my love for the film. It's also randomly like one of my favorite movie posters of all time. If you guys look at our Instagram, that's going to be the poster we'll use for this movie, and it's just so well done. Yeah, this movie is really unique, I think, and it's it's unique in ways that you wouldn't expect it to be. I don't think there's another movie I can really compare this to, but in kind of like recent media, it's very much Stranger Things vibes. Well, it was Stranger Things before Stranger Things was out. And I think that's one of the yeah. things I like about it. And you have all these homages to these like classic 80s films throughout and you get mm -hmm. that feeling of 80s nostalgia. I mean, the film takes place in 1979 and J.J. Abrams is close with Steven Spielberg. But for this movie, fun fact, this is the only movie directed by J.J. Abrams that's not part of an already like established franchise. Because I mean, he had Mission Impossible, Star Trek, Star yeah. Wars, but this is his first like standalone direction. Wow, that's really interesting i think he absolutely nailed it i was watching a lot of interviews and the way that he talks about how they went about creating the scenes and the two things i watched were about the creature which we'll get into later in the train crash as well and he was very specific of course i mean he knows what he's doing as a director but i think he made such a unique and special film and I don't know. It's like a modern creature feature. And that was really popular between the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And I think they just nailed that, like you said, homage, like right on the head. It's a perfect little tribute. And not only is it a creature feature, it's like a coming of age film as well. You follow this group of kids. And I just want to say out of the gate, the dynamic and chemistry between the kids is so organic. I felt like yeah. I was watching me and my friends when we were younger. Yeah, I... <laughs> I will never forget this. Somebody told me in college, I forget what movie we were watching, but they were like, oh yeah, this is the kids on bike genre. I'm like, that's exactly what it is. This is a kids on bikes movie. You know, I was getting like, again, modern reference, not that this isn't a modern film, but like more updated reference. It has a very similar feel to it as well. 
again, another Kids on Bikes movie. Yeah. E.T. E.T., yeah. This film is really great. I highly encourage you to watch it if you haven't seen it yet. That being said, I'll give you a spoiler warning now. We're going to be going into Super 8 in great detail. So if you have not seen the film, and we highly encourage that you do, um, and you don't want that spoiled for you, we suggest you take a break now and revisit this at a later date. So let's talk about the plot a little bit. So the film opens up on a steel factory in February of 1979. And you have this sign that says days since last accident. And they're changing the numbers. And you see that there's rubble behind them. So clearly there's been an accident in the plant. And it cuts Mm -hmm. to kind of like a post-funeral party. And this is where you get introduced to the characters. And you realize that someone passed away in the accident. And that person was Elizabeth Lamb. Elizabeth Lamb left behind her husband, the deputy of the town, Jackson Lamb, and her son, Joe Lamb. And that's where you kind of get your primary family that we're going to be following. I love how this film kind of, I mean, they teach you when you're in like fourth grade taking writing classes, show don't tell. And I think this film like really exemplifies that because Joe's like holding his mother's locket and you're assuming, okay, this is probably Joe's mom and she was the one that died. And this is, you know, you're piecing everything together and they do that throughout the film. We'll get into it a little later on, but I really like how they don't say, oh my God, what a tragedy. Elizabeth, Joe's mother has died. Like they just do a really great job at giving you pieces to put together and not putting it all up front there. And they have some dialogue between the parents of Joe's friends talking about how his dad's going to need to step up. But again, they never straight up say that his mother died. It's actually the friends that say that because they're bickering about how Joe's not going to want to make their movie anymore because it's a zombie movie and it's about the undead. (laughs) I I love that because that's just such a real kid moment. Like The movie is the most important thing, of course. Of course, because, I mean, that's what they're doing in their free time. And during this reception, a man comes to pay a visit, and that man is Louis Daynard. Who, again, we don't find out who this guy is until, like, much later on. And it's kind of a big reveal when you find out who he is. Right. But, I mean, through this all, Joe is sitting outside because he's grieving and he's holding his Mm -hmm. mom's locket. And you see Louis pull up, and he goes and knocks on the door. And then the deputy actually brings him out and yells at him that he's not welcome and puts him in the squad car. And that's where Joe kind of locks eyes with his dad, not really sure what's going to happen. And he just closes the locket. And then we jump four months later. Right. And we see that the kids are making the movie that Charles is directing. And they have just cast Alice. This is like the first conversation we kind of open up with them on. They're all excited about Alice being cast. And it opens up leading into summer. So they're getting out of school. The school's out moment. Similar to it, actually. Yeah, like... Again, kids on bikes movie. It's like requirements are kids with bikes, summer, a project they're doing, and something is in their way. (laughs) And I also like this scene because it's where you get introduced to the friend dynamic. In the reception scene, obviously we got introduced to them, but this is where you see them kind of just uncensor themselves because they're now just in a more appropriate environment. They're not at a funeral. It's different. (laughs) But I agree with you. I think they have such a natural middle school kid dynamic i felt like this movie i was watching my brother with all of his friends i have a younger brother and watching him grow up with like his solid group of friends like they reminded me very much of them and so this film that charles is shooting is going to be filmed on super 8 film and that's where you get the title kind of as an homage to it Mm -hmm. But he's submitting it to a film festival in Cleveland, and he's talking about how he needs something that's going to push him over because there's these older kids and college kids that are actually entering, and he doesn't think he stands a chance. So that's going to kind of push his motivation later in terms of why they're filming when we get to the accident. 
Right. And when they first show that scene, it's like one of the zombie deaths or something. I wrote in my notes that it's honestly pretty decent special effects for middle school kids. They're doing a really good job. I also read that they wanted to film it on Super 8 film to make it look authentic, but the VFX team said that the resolution of Super 8 wasn't going to work film on film. And so they had to shoot it on 16 millimeter film and then degrade and reassemble it to look like Super 8 film. Oh my God, that seems like a lot of work. But I mean, I think it definitely paid off because the look of the film has such a specific and unique feel to it that it's like, it's not film you're used to seeing because they don't really shoot on Super 8 anymore. So to create that, to kind of get this very specific category of film, I think, I mean, it paid off. And in the dialogue we're introduced, like you mentioned, they say that Alice Daynard has been cast. And... (laughs) It's a new part to the movie. Charles explains to Joe that he wrote this part of the wife because he thinks that it's going to add depth to the character of the detective that they've been filming. And at first, Joe's kind of just like, why does the detective need a wife? But then when he hears it's Alice Daynard, he's like, oh my God, you got Alice Daynard to do this? So they all agree that they're going to rendezvous later that night and Alice is going to drive them. Right. And I think one of the important things here is that when we're at Charles's house, we see his whole family and they're very welcoming and and accepting of Joe. They're like, oh, stay for dinner. You're always welcome. And Joe rides his bike. Oh, and you get that establishing kids on bike movie overshot where he's like riding his bike across the street. And he goes back to his house and it's just so minimal lighting and it looks gloomy inside. Like it definitely looks sad in his house. So you're kind of getting that dichotomy of like, Charles's life and Charles's family and then Joe and what his family has become. And I I think you really see what he's missing there. And I think one of the reasons that Joe is in this kind of like depressive state is because he does not have a strong relationship with his dad. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have any like parental figure at this point because his dad kind of shuts him off a little bit. And then we get that scene, his dad brings him to... um, a diner, a restaurant, something. And he's really trying to get him to go to a summer baseball program. But Joe's like, I promised Charles that I would do this movie. You know, I want to do this movie. And (laughs) one of my favorite lines here is when his dad says, I've got nothing against your friends. I like your friends, except Carrie, who can't stop lighting things on fire. (laughs) And Carrie has this running joke throughout because he constantly is lighting like firecrackers and sparklers in the background. I love Carrie. He's such a funny character. But through that conversation, you do realize that the dad doesn't really accept Joe for who he is. Joe likes doing Mm -hmm. the monster makeup for the movies, and he likes hanging out with his friends, and his dad suggests going to baseball camp. And they kind of just leave it at that. There's no actual discussion between the two. He just says, I think you should do this. And he says, I'm going to help my friends finish their movie. And then they just sit in silence. Yeah, I think there's just a... I'm trying to help, but I don't want to do anything more to upset you because we're going through a rough time. And I think that in terms of the plot later on, if you were asking why maybe there wasn't much communication between the two of them, it's because of tensions like this. Mm-hmm. And it's like their relationship is so important because it really sticks out like a sore thumb that his mom is missing from that picture. And obviously later on that becomes a huge part of this. And it's like a theme throughout the entire movie. 
So then we cut to later that night when they're meeting up to film and you have all the friends waiting on the side of the road for Alice to come and pick them up. And I really liked this shot because it's just <laughs> them goofing off and they're singing My Sharona and eating some Twizzlers. And mm-hmm. again, you have that banter between friends where one of them throws a Twizzler at the other and he's like, did you just throw a rock at me? And they all start laughing. <laughs> they're like, it's a Twizzler. Oh my God. And they're just singing. But I read that originally when the boys were sitting and waiting for Alice to pick them up, It was supposed to be just them talking, but J.J. Abrams heard them singing together between takes behind the scenes and decided to feature it in the film. I love that. I love when they just roll camera on like natural banter because it makes it so much more authentic. And again, this relationship between the kids is so good. And I think if we didn't have moments like that, you wouldn't get such a strong friendship and payoff at the very end when they're all like working together to make this whole thing happen. Exactly. So then Alice pulls up in her dad's car and she didn't realize that Joe was a part of this project. And she has this moment where she's just like, he's the deputy's kid. What is he doing here? He's going to tell I can't drive. And she's like 13. <laughs> yeah, they're middle schoolers. So obviously she can't drive. And she shares this moment with Joe and Joe's like, I, I promise I won't tell. And so she agrees to it. But I actually read that she was 12 at the time of filming and so obviously it's illegal for her to drive. So they had yeah. a stunt person driving from the back seat with a mini steering wheel and monitor. And JJ Abrams actually said on the commentary track, what's weird is that's legal. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I think that's so funny though, because that's, I guess, not as unsafe, but I don't know. There's not a different way to do that. A blind driver, essentially. I feel like they kind of discredit the fact that Alice is like raising herself, though. I mean, her father is a drunk. Yeah. Yeah, her father is worth nothing. So I'm sure that she learned to drive by herself. Of course. Like, this is all out of necessity. And I I think that's a good point because I I hadn't thought about that before. She probably did, like, learn to drive herself because her father has probably been in situations where he can't drive and they're somewhere, you know. So then we pull up to an abandoned train station. And I – this is about to set – up the entire movie this scene is crafted so perfectly i think this is such a fantastic moment in film and i'm so surprised that this movie isn't like studied more or like as popular as it should be it doesn't i don't know was this movie popular when it came out i can't remember it placed first at the box office for the weekend it came out but it was only to like i think 25 or 35 million so It was a decent turnout for, you know, a non-franchise film, but I do think that it deserves a lot more respect from people in the film community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, having taken film classes and whatnot, I'm kind of surprised that I haven't come across this in like an academic setting because there's so much to like take apart here, especially when we get into, well, we'll move there, (laughs) but... We pull up at this abandoned train station and they're shooting a scene where the detective's like leaving and his wife is trying to get him to stay or something. Right. So the detective in the film is investigating this zombie infestation in the town. So the scene that they're shooting is between him and his wife, and he's trying to tell his wife that it would be safer if she left town. Yeah. And I love this scene because Charles kind of like knows what he's doing. And what this movie does so well, and I think you lose a lot when you do films that are centered around kids, is that it gives agency and like personality and like talent to kids like it respects the kids as people themselves and it's not just like oh we're making a fun little project and it's kind of stupid like they're actually making a pretty decent like film for a middle schooler you know 
And I mean, it really is emphasized further when Alice goes on and surprises them all with her acting because they run a rehearsal of the scene and she gets herself to cry. I mean, she's giving this, I want to say, Nicole Kidman level performance. Oh, she's fantastic in this film. I love her so much. It's so funny because she takes the words out of all the boys' mouths. They literally are speechless. And even Martin, who's playing the detective, just pauses because he doesn't remember his line. And he just goes, (laughs) I love you too. Yeah, that was a great scene. So after that, they see a train coming in the distance. And Charles is like, do you know, get the camera ready. This is great for, what does he keep saying? Production Production value. value. (laughs) And so they all scramble to get the shot off before the train comes. And, you know, you have the train horn. And he's just like, talk louder. Like, talk loud over the horn whatnot. And this brings us to, in my opinion, the coolest scene in the entire film. That's right. This is the big scene, like you mentioned, that's going to set the rest of the movie in motion. So as the train's coming, they're scrambling. And again, you have that childlike banter. They're all yelling at each other, like, put film in the camera, get the lighting set up. Oh my God, what's going on? And they're all just scrambling around running. And Martin's like, I don't know my lines. I don't know my lines. And they're like, you know your lines. You're going to be fine. Yeah. (laughs) They call action as the train's approaching and they start running the scene and it's going well. But Joe looks off and sees a truck approaching the train that's oncoming. And so right as the truck's about to collide, he says, guys, watch out. And the truck collides with the train and sets off this huge explosion. Okay. One of the cool things about this film is that the explosions – now, stick with me here. The explosions are all real and practical, but anything that's moving – so any moving explosion, so when the train hits and that fire is moving, that's VFX. But the, like, field explosions, those were all real. Interesting. I didn't know that. I know. Isn't that sick? Because like this scene is so cool to watch. And I was watching a documentary, which I highly recommend. If you have seen this film, this documentary on YouTube, it's called The Visitor Lives. It's like 12 minutes, not long at all, but it's pretty much just about the VFX for this film. They were talking about how borrowing from like Westerns where the sheriff rides into town from left to right and then like the bad guy comes in from right to left and then the sheriff leaves left to right and they mirrored that with how the train goes so you see the train moving left to right right to left and then back left to right and i just think that's really cool one of the things i liked about this scene is that i was reading that jj abrams insisted that the train station scenes were actually shot at night outside instead of being inside a studio and i think you can Mm -hmm. really tell because when you have a studio set it's a lot more obvious in my personal opinion versus when it's filmed on location Absolutely. And I watched two documentaries on this movie. And in both of them, I only saw, now granted, they were only covering a few scenes, but I only saw one use of green screen. And it was only a partial green screen to cover it back, like a hole in the set. But yeah, pretty much everything seemed to be on location, I think. I don't think there was a lot of like building here. So one of the things about this train scene is that the senior VFX artist, Dennis Murin, said, I'm going to quote him here, you could say it's over the top, but that's intentional. The way I look at it is it's like your memory as if you were there. So put yourself in the brain of like a 13-year-old boy watching a crazy train explosion. And the scene is, of course, over the top, which makes it so fantastic and amazing to watch. But obviously, you're going to embellish it a little bit as a kid. You know, you're retelling stories. You want everyone to think you're cool that you like experience this. So your brain kind of fills in little gaps that you may have missed. And so that's what they were trying to replicate as opposed to what's the most practical, realistic thing to happen. And I really like that take on it. And I think, again, puts you in that mindset of almost being in this group you're like following them around 
So as the train derails and explodes, the gang's running for cover, and they all kind of just scatter in their own directions, and you see the train cars flying everywhere, some of them are landing, some of them are on fire. Like you mentioned, it's very over the top, very fun to watch. They do all survive the ordeal, but they have this funny gag where (laughs) all the boys meet up, and they're like, where's Alice? And they see a train car that has remnants of blood on it, and they're just like, oh my god. And then you just hear Alice's voice, and she just goes... Whose blood is that? And then Joe realizes <laughs> that it was his makeup kit and it's fake blood. Yeah, I love that moment because it gives you a little bit of levity in this situation. Like I said, this is such a well-written script that like you're having this really heavy moment and it's still like there's a lot to address. Like what was that car? Why did they go directly onto the train tracks? And you just have this funny moment of, oh my God, it's just my fake blood. <laughs> so then they're exploring the wreckage and they come across these white cubes. They compare them to Rubik's cubes, but they don't really know what they are. They just decide to take them because, I mean, as a kid, mm-hmm. any any cool thing like that, I would take too. Right. So they end up making their way towards the truck that collided with the train, and they recognize that the guy in the truck is one of their teachers. His name is Dr. Woodward. Then a note falls out of his hand, and they open it up, and it's a map of the train schedule across the United States. And Woodward, like, grabs it out of their hand and says, they will kill you. Do not speak of this or else you and your parents will die. And that's like, okay. It's real now. Like we're getting we're getting into this whole thing. And as that happens, they hear footsteps of people approaching. So obviously mm-hmm. they're going to run and they run back to Alice's car. But in the process, they go and grab Charles's camera that fell down on the train platform and was recording the whole thing. Right. And those footsteps that are approaching, we find out, are the Air Force. And so in one of those documentaries I was watching, Brian Burke, who's one of the producers, said that JJ always had this idea to do a movie about materials being shipped by Area 51. And I I don't know, I didn't think that's what was really happening. Because again, this movie kind of gives you puzzle pieces to put together. And I hadn't connected that one in my head. But from Area 51, that makes sense. So Alice brings them all home, but she has this moment where she tells Joe that she should have just never came, and that's going to set up the next scene with her, but we'll get there later. So it cuts to the next day, and they're all just acting normal, and Joe goes over to Charles's house, and they're watching the news, and they're like, did you hear about the train crash? And he's like, no, I didn't catch it. And there's this one important line there where they say, it's like a disaster movie, which gives Charles an idea. He decides that he wants to add even further production value and film at the wreckage. Yeah, I think... Of course, you know, he's a kid. It's exactly what he's going to want to do. But then we find out later that Alice doesn't want to be in the movie anymore, which, okay, yeah, Alice, me too. (laughs) But she changes her mind. There's this moment where Joe goes over to her house because she doesn't want to be in the movie to try and convince her. And in that moment, Alice's dad comes home, Lewis, and he's very much the same as he was four months ago. He pulls up, he's slurring his words, he's drunk, and he's just Mm -hmm. kind of rude. And he tells Joe, she's not hanging out with you, and you better stay away from her. And so in this moment, Alice kind of gets some independence. You can tell that her dad's been absent, and she's not here for it. And so Mm -hmm. as any 12-year-old would, when your parents tell you no... But out of spite, you're going to go do it anyway. So she just goes, I'll help you finish your movie. And so they end up going back to the crash site. And (laughs) I wrote my notes. And it's sick. Like, it's so cool. They're getting really cool shots because, like, this train wreckage actually looks really cool. And that's when we find out that the train is actually part of the Air Force. It is owned by the Air Force. It is an Air Force train. And I think when I was watching this the first time, my thought was, why Air Force? Like, military makes sense. But why Air Force? And of course, clearly, you know, you've seen the movie. We're dealing with extraterrestrial stuff here. So I just think that was a smart way of kind of giving early clues as to where we're headed. It's up in the sky. 
It's up in the sky. <laughs> so once they finish filming at the wreckage, they go to a diner and they're analyzing the map and trying to figure out why Dr. Woodward did this. And mm -hmm. they're ruling it out as suicide. I think Preston, actually, he's one of their friends. He goes, there are so many other ways that you could commit suicide. Why would you do that? <laughs> yeah. And I... I love this movie because of scenes like that where they're sitting around talking and then Joe is the one who's like, guys, we need to figure this out. And Charles is like, did you hear what he said? He's going to kill us. They're going to kill our parents. Like, you know, we can't talk about this. But again, the dialogue is just so organic here that it's, it's a great scene to watch. I just like watching the kids because mm -hmm. we've mentioned it so many times. Their chemistry is so organic. And I don't know if it was improv or if it was scripted that way. But either way, they played their parts to a T. Absolutely. And I think they were definitely cast in like the perfect roles for them, especially Carrie. I love Carrie. <laughs> Carrie's the MVP. So during that, we then cut to Deputy Lamb, Jack, and he's back at the wreckage site and he's trying to look for answers. And so he's coming up and asking the general what's going on because he wants to, you know, give the town answers as to what this was because everyone in the town's freaked out. Why was there a huge train crash? And they're very vague. They're just like, oh, don't worry. It's not hazardous. We're cleaning it up. We're taking care of it. But Jack notices that they're picking up the remnants of these white cubes that are all over that Joe had picked up the night before. Right, but he knows nothing of this. Like, there's a very separate story from adults and children and what they're dealing with here. And I, again, love that they give the children the intricate plot of the story without the help of adults. Like, they're really, truly figuring this out by themselves. And we cut to a scene at a gas station. The sheriff goes in to, like, fill up the tank, whatever. He's talking to a kid. They have this exchange about a Walkman. And he's like, it's a Walkman. It's a radio that you can, like, portable radio for your ears. <laughs> and I, I like that because I think when you do pieces that are set, because this very well could have been set modern day. There's nothing that really like sets it apart, but there's like small conversations like this that really give you, okay, we're in the 70s. So I but, beg you this question, would this movie have been as fun if it was set in modern day? So I literally was thinking about you the entire time we were watching this movie because I know you love 70s movies and like the vibe, like that's right up your alley. <laughs> Of course. So good. It's my brand. Right. I literally was like, this is such a Sean movie. Like, if I were to describe Sean to someone, I'd be like, Super 8, probably. I don't know. <laughs> a bunch of kids running around making movies in the 70s. My dream. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't think it would have been as fun just because we're even seeing like now when you follow stories with kids, like everyone has phones and everything, you know, there's no let's look up what this is on the internet. It's just kids riding their bikes around the town putting puzzle pieces together and I don't think it would have been as fun had it been set in modern day plus you get that like air of nostalgia as well so it does make it an enjoyable aesthetic film to watch and I think that it would be way too impossible to keep it consolidated into the town I mean news would be all yeah. over the place with this that's a good point as well because this is kept very I mean, it's a small town in Ohio, and they're able to keep it in their little circle. But at this gas station, we get another really important scene where the sheriff is there, and he walks out, and you get animal noises in the distance, and then a bunch of dogs running past him, and then the lights on the cop car turn on. So, like, weird things are happening, and clearly we know something's going on at this point. But then we get a really good use of diegetic noise because the gas numbers are, like, dinging, but they're dinging, like, non-rhythmically. Rhythmic is the best word I can come up with for that. But then they speed up and then slow down completely. So you're getting ding, 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 ding. And then it stops completely. And they give you a great jump scare there where the dumpster just comes flying out. And this is the first time we're actually going to get not a full glimpse, but like 
the presence of the creature. Yeah. It cuts to inside and you're back with the kid that had the Walkman discussion, the guy at the register. And they're giving you these pieces, like a quote from the VFX supervisor. He said they wanted to keep everything hidden until necessary so that your mind can fill in the danger. And I think it makes it scarier that way because when we're cutting to the scene with the kid, you see the cop car get like rocked and then the glass shatters, I think. And they did this angle a couple times, and I think it's very, like, telling of the times. The angle of the camera overhead is, like, it's not leveled. It's, like, off tilted a little bit. I don't know. It gives it a very specific vibe. Do you know what I mean by that? Yeah. It gives it the eerie vibe. Yeah. It's, like, a little off kilter. But they do a really cool job at hiding where the creature's standing with the gas station sign. So you still don't see it. Like, it's just there's a presence and there's something otherworldly there, but you can't see it. So then we cut to the next day, and the sheriff is now missing, as well as the gas station attendant. And Jack is walking around town, and there's people complaining about everything. They're saying their dogs are missing, their household appliances are missing, the electrical equipment in their house is missing. All this stuff starts disappearing, and he doesn't really know what's going on. But again, he's believing the Air Force has something to do with this. So... In a town meeting, someone mentions that one of his issues is that he listens to his radio and now all he hears is military chatter. So Jack Mm, goes up to him and is like, can you give me those frequencies so now he can listen in? And it's in this moment where he hears them talk about Operation Walking Distance. Exactly. And right before the town hall meeting, though, we do get the second scene where you get a glimpse of that creature. And it's when like an electrical worker is like on a cherry picker and he sees huge metal scraps being thrown into air, which I'm assuming is from like the crash site somewhere similar to that but then the lights flicker on the car so we're again seeing like this electrical frequency being messed with and then something emerges from the brush and we see tentacles that they give us another piece to the clue they give us tentacles this time but after the town hall meeting lucy who's joe's dog was found another town over he put up a missing poster sign for her earlier and one of the people from the sheriff's office is like we've been getting calls and like i trace them they're all like All these calls are coming in and making like a perfect circle around the town where all these missing dogs have fled. So something's clearly happening. But that's also where you realize that like the dogs running forward in the gas station scene were tied to that. Exactly. So again, these puzzle pieces being slowly put together is just such juicy filmmaking. I love it. So once Jack hears the radio transmission about Operation Walking Distance, he runs into Lewis Daynard, Alice's dad, and he tells Jack to keep Joe away from Alice. But Jack didn't have any idea that they had been hanging out, so he gets mad and he storms over to go and find Joe, essentially. And then we cut back to the kids who are now filming (laughs) in their town, which is overrun by military. And you have that funny dialogue between the kids and they're just like, are we going to get in trouble for filming this? And he's like, shut up, we're just going to film. Production value. (laughs) But yeah, they're literally filming in front of like the military trying to take over wood it's woodward's house i think they're at correct yeah they're exploring woodward's house looking for further evidence of what happened right and they're literally just filming in front they're having a scene in front of the military presence at woodward's house it's just you know complete disregard but joe's dad finds him and he's kind of being a jerk about the whole situation and he's making joe get in the car and he snatches the camera from charles to be fair it is jack's camera and he says that he's like i know it's your camera but that's my film and they have this moment where Alice and Joe lock eyes and Alice mouths, is it because of me? And Joe just shakes his head no. But it is because of Alice. But again, we don't really know why it's Alice's fault. Like they don't really go into detail. And me piecing this together after not seeing it for years, I said, is it just that her dad like isn't a good guy? But Joe's really mad at his dad, rightfully so, and ends up going to his mom's grave. 
I mean, first we have the scene between Joe and Jack, and they're yelling at each other because Jack's like, you are not going to hang out with them. You're not going to finish this movie, and you are not going to hang out with Alice Daynard. Are we clear? And Joe's like, we're not clear. And this is the first moment you really see Joe kind of branch out because He's a very shy and introverted kid throughout the movie. And I was reading that behind the scenes, the actor Joel Courtney was naturally a very quiet person. And so J.J. Abrams had to coax him into yelling loud enough for that scene. Oh, wow. Yeah, I kind of got the feeling that a lot of these kids like were their characters because they just embodied them so well. And also before we get to the cemetery, because again, we have that separation where it follows Jack and then it cuts to the cemetery with Joe. Jack goes to meet General Nellick, who told him earlier when he brought up, oh, what's Operation Walking Distance? He said, we can talk about this in private. And so Jack goes to meet him in private and ends up being placed under military arrest. He was sabotaged. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that part. I think I was making chicken nuggets at that time. It's important because we mentioned the dynamic and how communication just isn't there. And one thing I noticed is that once Jack is placed under military arrest, Joe doesn't question where his dad is for the next two days when he doesn't see him. Yeah, I think that's why I forgot about it because it's just, you know. But again, that maybe alludes to their relationship. Like they probably don't communicate as much as they used to anymore. And it's just like if he comes home and his dad's not there, maybe that's not out of the ordinary for him. And his dad's a police officer. So I'm sure there are moments where it's like that. So at the graveyard, you know, you get this like sweet moment with joe like sitting next to his mom's grave and he's feeling kind of lost but then you get this creaking in the distance and again we're led to assume that that's this creature we don't know what it is yet so it's the creaking in the distance but joe also notices this almost like garage that's in the graveyard site and he sees this storage yeah dirt storage but he sees this like almost explosion he hears a bang and it kind of scares him into leaving like something definitely is happening in that little shack but in the meantime we end up going and seeing woodward and woodward's being held at a military base about quote something he knew and so you see you know woodward's kind of refusing to give information and you see a guy from behind the curtain fill a syringe with a liquid that has like a biohazard symbol on it and you hear Woodward say he's mine I'm going to catch him he's in me you know and it's just like weird conversation and you're like who is he like who is this guy we're talking about and I still think it's a little weird that they refer to him as he but I think at this point Woodward has maybe like lost it a little bit because you get this really weird speech from him and that's kind of like the last we see of him. It's implied that they killed him because as they yeah. put the syringe into his IV and they're like, so if you're not going to tell us what you know, then you don't have any reason to live anymore. And so as right. they inject it, you see him kind of just start to like slump. I thought it was seize. Was it, was it like seizing? I don't remember. He dies. Let's just assume he dies here. So then it cuts to Joe and Joe's at home and he was asleep, but he's woken up by Alice who's sneaking into his room for the night. And she's really insistent that, like, you know, I think your model trains are so cool. Like, you shouldn't let Charles blow them up for his movie. Like, they're really cool. And you get this really sweet moment between the two of them where they're like, oh, they have, like, a crush on each other. Because it's kind of teased up until now. But, like, no. You know, she's she's kind of sticking up for him a little bit and being like, you need to be your own person. Well, there was a scene earlier where Charles wanted to get footage of the train crash for their film. But when they developed the reel that was recording, it was all fuzzy. And so he was like, what are we going to do? And Joe makes model trains as a hobby. And they saw that he made one of the Air Force train. And they're like, oh, we can just blow up Joe's train. That's okay, right, Joe? And Joe's very hesitant. But Alice is the one that notices his hesitation. And he's just like, "Um, yeah, I I guess that's okay. So 
this scene is really cute because she comes over just to tell him, I don't think you should let them blow up your train. Yeah, but in this scene, we get, oh my god, this this hurts my feelings. The projector turns on because the power had been out, and Joe was earlier before bed watching home movies of him and his mom when he was like a baby on like a projector. And Alice notices this, and she also notices that Joe's holding the locket, and she asks yeah. him about why he's always holding this locket, and that's when he explains that his mom used to always wear this locket, and even though in the accident it's implied that a steel beam crushed her, they were able to retrieve the locket, and so it's the last thing that he has of her. You get this amazing performance from Elle Fanning where she's watching the video on the wall being projected and you just see like emotion kind of overcome her. And here we get this like really important reveal that I'm just going to quote the movie here. She says, he drank that morning. My dad, your mom took it for him the day of the accident because her dad was too drunk to go into work. So Joe's mom ended up taking his place that day. And we've been wondering through this whole movie what Joe's dad's problem is with Alice's dad. And I mean, he's a drunk, but was there anything more to it? So you have this really intense moment where she's revealing this. And then she goes on to say, I wish that it was him instead of her. And Joe's like, you don't mean that. I don't think you mean that. And that's not true. But their conversation is interrupted abruptly because in this moment, the cube that Joe had taken from the train site starts vibrating really aggressively against his table. And she looks at it and she's like, has that ever happened before? And he goes, no. And then it just flies through the wall outside the house. Yeah, and I really like the way that they do this because it throws itself against the wall. It goes straight through the wall, straight through a space shuttle poster, which is kind of like a space reference there, (laughs) you know? Uh, Not very subtle at all. But then the hole it makes in his wall, you can only see the water tower in the distance from it, which ends up being really important later. I'm assuming you've seen the movie, you know where we're going with that, but... You just see the water tower in the distance. It's this like perfect little hole. And then Alice heads home only to find her dad drunk and wondering where she's been. But she gets upset with him and he basically just says, go ahead and just leave like your mother. So she storms out and rides away on her bike. But her father decides to chase her and drive drunk. And that leads to him crashing his car. And in the moment he crashes, Alice turns around and sees this and has this moment where she's like, I should go and help him. But in that moment, the creature snatches her up. And you have this shot where Lewis is actually the one that sees the creature because he hears a scream and then he sees it in his rearview mirror. But again, you don't get the full shot of the creature. Yeah, you're just again seeing like tentacles a little bit more, but you're seeing it in the rearview mirror. So it's not like super clear. You're only getting a slice of like what's going on. And that's, you know, we cut out of that scene. There's nothing like Alice is gone. Alice is gone now. And I think that kind of throws us into the third act of the movie where like things get real. Would you agree? Definitely. Because this next day it opens up and Joe goes over to Charles's house and Charles is kind of being a little bit passive aggressive and short with Joe, but we don't really know why. And Joe's like, it'll be fine. We can finish your movie. And he's like, no, it won't be fine. And Joe kind of believes that it's because his dad took away the camera. But then you find out that the only reason Charles wanted Alice to be in the movie was because he had a crush on Alice. And all along, he's now gotten jealous because Alice and Joe have gotten close. Right. And again, I think we're really delving into the lives of middle schoolers here. There's so much going on and they're still like worried about, oh my God, but I had a crush on her and I'm mad at you because... Not because you like her, but because she likes you. And that was a sad moment. They're going through their film at this point, too. And that's where they realize that all of the film wasn't garbage. They see the film developed and they're seeing it smoky. And they're like, we can't use this footage. So they continue talking. But then as it's projecting on his shirt, 
they see a creature and they look and they see that the film actually captured the creature getting out of the train. And now the kids know that there's a creature on the loose. Right. So cool. Like, again, giving us another piece of this, like, puzzle to this creature, what it is. Um, But then we immediately get interrupted in the scene by an evac siren. So once the evac siren goes out, Charles and Joe step out and they realize that the town's being evacuated. And so they board a bus and they get to this military base and Charles finds his family and Joe's like, I'm going to go look for my dad. And on his search for his dad, he ends up stumbling across Alice's dad, who's rambling on about something and no one's listening. And he grabs Joe and is just like, it got her. It got my daughter and no one believes me. And you have this moment of realization where Joe's like, I believe you. And then it cuts to the friends and they're like, we have to go save Alice. And of course, some of them are like we're not going out there we can't just leave this we're gonna get killed and they're like we have to it's alice so again you have that bickering of the friends which kind of adds a little bit of lightheartedness to the moment where yeah i always tell people that this movie isn't scary because there's enough to balance it out and i think that those bursts of bickering between the kids specifically really does lighten the mood i mean i don't think stranger things is necessarily scary it's that same kind of vein of we're really just following these kids in their lives and trying to figure out a mystery more than anything right so then they end up bribing the camera store owner to take them into town because they want to go and find (laughs) alice and they end up going to the middle school because they think they can find answers in dr woodward's shed and they end up finding all these like weird old tapes i think it goes back to like the what it goes back to like the 50s or something like that the 60s yeah and you know it's woodward working in this i almost want to call it like a lab but lab is like not the right mind picture that comes up but it's it's, it's an like air a force unit. military base research something I research don't know. facility anyway we find out the creatures there this whole creature and it's kind of locked away so again we don't get to see it in its like fullness yet but we're getting like these tentacles and like glimpses again and woodward says in it instead of giving him the help he needs we've treated him as a prisoner and they've been doing experiments on quote unquote him and woodward this whole time has just been trying to help him avoid becoming an enemy but i guess was ultimately unsuccessful in that because this creature's terrorizing the town at this point. Well, there's a really important line of dialogue in those tapes where Woodward explains that it has this like telepathic link that it gives someone once it touches them. And so when they're in the lab in the footage, you see the creature's tentacle grab Woodward. And so in that moment, he says, I knew that it was just scared and wanted to go home. But because the military continued to experiment on it, it became afraid of humans and has turned to what it is now. Exactly. And I really like that this monster creature thing, alien, whatever you want to call it, has like almost a mini origin story. Like it's not innately evil. It became that way because of how it was treated like on Earth. And it's, I guess at the end of the day, just scared and it just wants to go home. Honestly, I think that's realistic. If we had a foreign alien come down to Earth, I think that the government would try and overtake it and harness it for power because I think the human race is so toxic in their strive for power that something like this is exactly what would happen. And that's exactly why it would turn into a disaster. I agree completely. I think, again, this film is just written so wonderfully. It's, I don't know, everything pieces together so perfectly. And it's really set in like, it's not so hyper unrealistic where you're like, ah, this is super sci-fi. It's like, yeah, I could see this happening. (laughs) So then the boys are interrupted because the Air Force arrives at school and puts them under arrest. They basically confiscate everything that they have, including Joe's mom's locket, which 
there's this really sad moment where Joe like begs him. He's like, please no. And then they just take it from him and put it in their pocket and they bring them onto the military bus to bring them back to the base. Yeah. I wrote in my notes. I was like, they literally took his locket for no reason. Like there's no reason for them to take that from him. That made me so upset. So then we cut back to Jack, who's under military arrest, as we know, and he's saying that he has to go to the bathroom, he has to go to the bathroom, and it's actually just a plot to escape, because once they let him out of his cell, he elbows the guard in the face and knocks him out, and then he steals his uniform and poses as a soldier to get out. I really like this because he finds characters that have been a part of this story and he ends up going with Preston. I don't know why Preston's there. Um, So Preston's not with the rest of the kids, but when Joe's dad finds him, he's like, Preston, you're going to tell me everything. And Preston just hands him the film. And it's in this moment that the parents are finally filled in on everything that's been happening. And we cut back to the boys who are on their way in the military bus to come back. But on route, the creature actually comes and crushes the van and one by one it's killing off the soldiers and these kids are in this cell in the back of the van like let us out please let us out and they end up having to break themselves out but they do escape and the camera store owner pulls up and you have this funny moment because he was just stoned in the parking lot of the school this whole time so he's oblivious to everything that's going on around him and he's just like oh i i can drive you guys back but just so you know i'm so stoned and they're like well i can drive so Again, you have the kids driving the adults here. And my favorite (laughs) punchline of that is that once they get to where they're going, the camera store owner is just passed out asleep in the car. So when we get back to the town, all the weapons, like the military weapons are misfiring. There's literally like loose tanks everywhere. I I wrote at this point in my notes that this seems like a 12-year-old wrote it. Like driving the car back into town, like weapons are firing everything, you know, just kind of, you know, has that air of adolescence to it but i really like it i I still think it's it's not an immature plot but martin breaks his leg at this point so charles decides to stay with martin and then carrie and joe end up going off to find alice and on their way there we have this sick shot of carrie and joe just running to the cemetery there's like literal fireballs flying through the air and houses are all aflame like it's just chaos at this point but it's a great shot So Joe and Carrie are running over because Joe assumes that what he saw in the shed earlier must have something to do with the creature. So they break down the door to the garage and find this hole. And they decide to dive down, assuming that it's the creature's lair. And the tunnel leads them to the town's water tower. This whole lair is under the town's water tower. And they see all the missing people from earlier hanging upside down. You see the sheriff, you see the gas station attendant, you see Alice, all these other random people. But it also shows the creature, and they see the creatures eating one, like, limb from this unknown person. Right, and I want to talk about the cave here really quick, because this is really interesting. And a little later on, I do want to talk about how the creature was created. But when they were creating the set, the creature had not been designed yet. But the idea was that the creature had to have dug this cave. So the production designer said that while they were building, the whole creature creation was still in progress. And the one thing they were really specific on was how the creature's hands looked like they needed to know what the hands looked like. That's how they determined how those scratch structures, like how it would have been dug and like made indents on the wall. And I just think that's such attention to detail. And going into the creature creation a little bit, one of the biggest issues with that was that this alien monster thing had to do 
dexterous work with its hands, taking apart microwaves and car engines and whatnot. So the solution they came up with was that this creature dug this entire hole in like cave system with its feet. Interesting. Yeah, that attention to detail is crazy. I wouldn't have even thought like that, but it definitely looks like that too because it's very messy. Yeah. And they were very specific that they didn't want it to look like something that was naturally built. They definitely wanted it to look like it was dug out. And I think they totally nailed that. So once they see that the creature is eating humans, Joe's scared that Alex might be next. So he looks at Carrie and he says, I need you to create a distraction and make sure it lasts. So Carrie (laughs) opens his backpack and reveals that he has a ton of firecrackers that he's just been waiting to set off. And so Joe goes to rescue Alex as Carrie's running around setting up all these firecrackers. And you have this moment where Joe lets down Alice and Carrie sets off the firecrackers, sending the creature running. But Alice is unconscious and Joe can't get her to wake up. So they have this moment where I thought they were going to have a kiss and I was really going to cringe about it. And (laughs) then Joe just slaps Alice across the face. (laughs) It's such a good moment because what would you do when you were 12? You know, if your friend's unconscious, slap them. I mean, did you get that vibe too that you thought they were about to kiss? Yeah, there's like this moment and I'm glad that they didn't do that. I agree with you. I think it would have been cringe. And I think we see that a lot with like middle school age movie the kids on bikes movies we see that a lot where it's like for some reason there has to be a love story in there and it's kind of not necessary when you're dealing with kids that young so i like the fact that he slapped her i think it was a funny moment and especially right now since we're in such a heavy scene like everything's i mean this is the pinnacle of the plot right here and you get that that moment of levity just you, you can laugh for a second before it gets serious towards the end And it's the difference between keeping the serious tone and turning it cheesy, which is why I'm happy they chose that direction. Exactly. So Joe slaps Alice awake and they start running. And in in the process, they end up taking the sheriff and then another random lady who like woke up by herself. I don't. (laughs) She had rollers in her hair. She looked a mess. Yeah, she was a mess. And I was like, why is this lady there? But she was definitely just a plot device. which is fine you know sometimes you have to have that little untied end but they're running away and the creature snatches the sheriff and the random lady and i think you needed that one too to like really instill that fear in you that like oh my god these kids are next well and in the moment that they're running away they stumble into carrie and joe's like carrie what are you still doing here And he's like i thought this was the exit and so they're kind of trapped they don't really know which direction to go in but they get cornered and that's when the woman and the sheriff get snatched so it's only the kids left in this moment which is a common theme in the movie is that the kids are alone right so the kids are alone now and you know they're cornered they don't know where they're going and the creature approaches them and picks up joe But in the moment, you're expecting Joe to be scared and he kind of just tenses up and he's sharing that telekinetic link that was mentioned earlier. And he's feeling all the creature's emotions and everything that it's been through. So he knows that it just wants to go home and he's shouting that at the creature. He's like, you just want to go home. Leave us Mm -hmm. alone. You just want to go. And that's where you see the creature break down. And this is our best shot of the creature so far because it's a close up of its face and it opens its eyes and it's examining Joe looking straight at him. Right. So I'm going to pause here and we're going to talk about the creature because the creation of this thing was absolutely nuts. Neville Page designed it and he said it took literally a year's worth of design to find the right design for JJ. So I'm going to quote JJ Abrams here. He says, when you start to look at what's been done, you start to realize A, everything's been done and B, that there are some kind of specific paradigms you have to adhere to. It's either going to be the more spider-like thing or this brute beast or it'll be the gray elegant alien. And what I like about this is it didn't fall easily into any one category. I completely agree with him there. I think this 
creature, alien, whatever you want to call it, is so unique. And it's not, you don't look at it and you're like, oh, it's an alien. Or you don't look at it and you're like, oh, that's a monster. It's just creature is the right word for it because it doesn't really fit into that. And so when they were doing like the first motion test and everything, showing the creature walking, it ended up starting more humanoid. It walked on two legs. And at one point, the designer unhinged its shoulder caps and created a second arm for it. So then they moved to like a crawling motion and they said it instantly became more frightening. I think that definitely upped it up. They did a lot of like, this doc is really cool to watch because they show you a lot of the previs, which I don't think you really get to see a lot, especially, I mean, even in behind the scenes stuff, you don't really get to see a lot of previs. So watching that creature start more humanoid and become more creepy crawly was really cool but i'm glad you brought up the eyes because they said that two points here one they ended up having to hire bruce greenberg to do motion capture because the expressions that the creature is making are so subtle and that's a lot harder to capture in vfx animation than it is if you're doing something more animated and they ended up changing the eyes i think they were more monster creature like but they changed them to match more of the mothers and they said there's this very subtle connection that the boy starts to have with the creature obviously i don't think i certainly didn't pick up on that but i think it is something very subtle the eyes are very human-like so when you're having this connection between joe and the creature at the very end it's such an impactful scene and i they nailed it i think it's fantastic i agree and i think like you mentioned, when they did that like unhinged crawl walk, it's creepy. It's a very spider-like walk. Yeah, but like J.J. Abrams said, I wouldn't categorize it as a spider-like creature. So it's just you have elements of each of these monster categories, but you can't classify it as any one of them. Right. So when this creature is holding Joe up, we see his eyes and he looks him in the eyes and says, I know bad things happen, but you can still live. And we're really getting this connection between like, joe and his mother and like i said at the top of the episode i think that's really overarching and this is kind of his closure on that whole situation in his life i can't explain it further than that but it feels like closure <laughs> like on clearly Super this creature. reddit what i didn't know existed they mentioned <laughs> that the creature could be viewed as like a metaphor for the pain that he's experiencing through his grieving process. Because at the end, which we're about to get into, when the creature is leaving, Joe is ready to let go and you have that moment with the locket. So, I mean, let's let's just go forward a little bit. Yeah. So once the creature puts Joe down, all the kids return to the surface because the creature now realizes that the kids don't mean harm and it just wants to go home. It's humanized again around them everything in the town that's electric and metal starts flying towards the water tower and you're not really sure what's going on but the kids are looking around at everything and the parents pull up and you had this moment where lewis and jack were driving and lewis apologizes to jack and he says i came to that funeral that day because i wanted to apologize to you i'm so sorry about what happened and jack says i know you're sorry i forgive you so you have that moment where Jack finally is also releasing his grief and anger and moving forward from it. So I think that a common theme in this is moving forward and putting the past behind you and healthily moving along. I really like that we get that closure between Jack and Lewis because they, you know, Jack says to him it, it was an accident. And I, I think there's, you know, that anger, like you said, moving on healthily, there's that anger and they're both able to move past that by just agreeing, you know, it was an accident. It, at the end of the day, it really isn't lewis's fault it just 
really was an accident, but it's easier to blame someone sometimes. I think we can all agree. So the kids are reunited with their parents and they're hugging their parents and Joe's hugging his dad. So you have closure on that. And Alice is hugging her dad. So you have closure on that. But they have this final shot where, like we mentioned, everything that's magnetic or metal or anything like that is getting drawn to the water tower and Joe's mom's locket which he got back when the creature crushed the military van is trying to pull away from him and he's holding on to it and I think it's symbolic because in that moment the locket flies open and you see that inside the locket was a picture of Joe's mom holding him as a baby and he lets go of the locket and I feel like that's kind of like we mentioned the metaphor of him letting go of the grief and finally processing it. I completely agree. And so this locket is the last piece that this creature is making. They call it a model, but it it ends up being a ship out of the water tower and it takes off and flies away. And as the locket attaches, this, this shot was so cool. The water tower bursts as the ship takes off. And in one of the documentaries I was watching, they had like B-roll footage of that. And they really did have like a scaled water explosion it wasn't just like shot per shot it was just like huge massive explosion it was cool to watch and then it cuts on joe and alice holding hands and that's actually what the film cuts out on yeah it's everything ties up in a nice little bow and a little fun for you in the credits you actually get to watch charles's (laughs) film that they've been filming this whole time so that was a fun watch for me i don't know about you I totally watched the entire thing and it's actually pretty decent like it's not too bad it's a student film you know (laughs) It's something I would have made with my friends, although they definitely did a better job at it than I would have. (laughs) So with that, let me ask you, I'm such a fan of this movie. Where do you put it on a scale of one to 10? So I was going to text you this through the movie last night and I've, it's become so hard. So the reason we started this podcast is because Sean and I always talk about movies with each other. And so having to like keep my opinions in the moment to myself is just so hard and like see for the podcast. But I think this definitely with my rewatch has moved it into like my top 20 favorite films. Of all time. Yeah. I am so happy (laughs) to hear you say that like overjoyed. I hope this can make up for the Batman. (laughs) The Batman, Licorice Pizza and the Green Knight. I know. I'm sorry, but I'm going to give this film a solid 8.5 slash 9. I am right there with you. I'm giving this film an 8.5. I adore this movie so much. The nostalgia, the humor, the thrills, the suspense, the action. It's all there. It checks off all the boxes so well. I highly recommend you to watch it if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it in a really long time, I even more strongly encourage you to rewatch it because it's just like discovering it for the first time. (laughs) I hope you guys also enjoy the poster like I do. Check that out on our Instagram or Twitter. That's what we posted today when we're announcing this episode drop. So with that, I am going to say if you guys enjoyed today's episode, be sure to follow us at BTST Podcast on Twitter or Instagram. And if you want to join our film discussion, let us know what you thought about Super or if you have any film suggestions for us, feel free to shoot us an email at btstpodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to subscribe if you enjoyed today's episode and make sure you join us on Thursday where we'll be discussing Last Night in Soho. I look forward to it, but until then, I'm Sean. And I'm Kat. And this has been another episode of Been There, Seen That. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 